0: Scripture reading this evening comes from Galatians, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. This is God's Word. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. To the churches, <clears throat> to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this evening, we are, uh, we're we're going to start in on a new uh, series. We're going to work our way together through the book of Galatians and uh, um hopefully it'll become clear as we, we talk this evening uh, why we're looking at it. But one basic uh, answer to that question would be, as I think about what is it that I would most like to, to preach on, and, and what do I think uh, we most need? One, one of the things I ask is, has anybody ever preached on this book before? And I asked Jeff Koontz, who's our resident historian, historian on any number of matters, and he said, well, no, no one's really preached through Galatians. We've had a few uh, one-off sermons here or there, but and I thought, well, I want to do Galatians now. Why might I want to do that? Here, here's why, and, and it's a little bit uh, a little bit of a, a window in on on me, and I, I'm I'm actually assuming a little bit about you. This book was written to Christians. And perhaps more than almost any other book in the Bible, maybe short of Romans, uh, this book has probably had more influence on the world than any other when it comes to laying out the Christian message. And it's essentially a message of freedom, of freedom, of gospel freedom. Freedom. Now, I, uh, I grew up in the church. I don't remember a day not believing in Jesus. But if I am honest with you, my lived experience of the Christian faith, more often than not, I wouldn't describe it as freedom. I probably would describe it to you more as sense of failure a sense of shame, a sense of guilt, a sense of weakness, a sense of never seeming to make any progress, continuing to do the same things over and over and over that I loathe after I do them, however good it might feel when I do it. Can you relate to that? The reason I want to look at this book together is I want us as a congregation and as individuals to experience in the depths of our being this freedom. This good news freedom of which Paul writes when he writes to the, church, the churches in Galatia. And this is a letter that he wrote uh, to a, a, probably three or four churches, which is in now in modern-day Turkey. Uh, It is a letter that he wrote after he had planted a number of churches there. Probably this letter was written somewhere around 50 A.D., midway through the first century. And I want you to think for a moment. If this is, okay, this this letter is about freedom. Maybe you're thinking to yourself for a moment, um, on the one hand, I'm actually pretty free. I can go where I want to go I can pretty much do what I want to do uh, for the most part my guess is you can pretty much uh, make plans however you want buy pretty much whatever you want you might feel pretty free for the most part but I want to come at this question a little bit differently for a moment and I want to ask you just a series of questions and just think about these and if one of them resonates try to try to Stow it away and think about it. Ask yourself this. How much time do you spend wondering what other people think of you? How free are you? What do you fear or worry about? How free are you? How do you handle guilt and shame, whether it be your own or other people? How free are you? How do you tend to treat people who have nothing to offer you? How free are you? How much do you work? How free are you? See, whether you and I realize it or not, our answers to those questions, what they do, they reveal our desires for freedom and then our methods for getting it. But the radical claim of Paul's letter to the Gentiles here in Galatia is that the freedom we all crave, it cannot be earned or won by anything that we do or do not do. It is purely a gift from God to the rescue of Jesus. And for Paul, there is no more important message for us than that one. That the freedom you crave, that you were made for, you cannot get it, you cannot win it, you cannot earn it. You can only receive it through the rescue of Jesus. And so tonight what I want to do is I want to first of all look together at why did Paul write this letter? And then I want to look at briefly in these opening verses what is the basic message Paul wants us to get? And then I want to finish by looking at what we can look forward to, what you can expect as we walk together through this book in the coming weeks and months. So first, let's look at why Paul wrote this. Now, I, don't, I didn't print this in your worship folder, but in verse 6 in chapter 1 uh, of this book, Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. It's hard to uh, put in relief for you the emotion and the passion and the zeal that Paul exhibits on a piece of paper here. But these churches that he has planted, they are in crisis. They are being lured away from the, the gospel that he preached to them, the message about Jesus upon which these churches were built. And this is his immediate concern, is that there's confusion, there's wavering, there's uncertainty. Some are even being lured away to what he calls a different gospel. That's the immediate concern to which Paul is trying to speak here. But it does beg the question, what is the broader question that's going on in the the early church at this point? I couldn't commend to you enough, if you would like to get some some lay of the land, you should go read in the book of Acts. Particularly, you could begin actually in chapter 9 and read all the way through 15. But if you just read chapter 13 through 15, you would get a very good dose of what's happening. And what's happening is, remember, the book of Acts is Jesus continuing work in the church, beginning in Jerusalem and then Judea and then to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. The gospel is going forward. It's now well beyond the bounds of Israel, of Judea, of where the the home of the Jewish people, and it's making inroads into the lives of pagans, non-Jews, people who have no connection to God's word and his promises throughout history. And they're hearing about Jesus, and they're putting their faith and their trust in him. And Paul is saying, Paul's preaching is simply, all that you need is to trust in this Jesus. Nothing else is required for you. And in fact, Luke in the book of Acts says, quoting Paul as he preaches, he says, let it be known to you therefore, brothers, that through this Jesus... Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. But now there are opponents. There are those who disagree with Paul. Uh, They go by different names in different um, books and literature, often referred to as Judaizers. These are folks who in all likelihood believe in Jesus, but also say... In order to be saved, to become a part of God's people, you must be circumcised. And in fact, in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, these opponents come right out and say this in the midst of a church gathering. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. There is a conflict in the early church about the nature of the gospel. What does, it, what does grace really mean? What does salvation involve? How do you get in on it? And here, Paul, when he writes this letter, as we'll see as we work through the book, Paul here is being viewed as, one, he lacks the, the requisite authority. He doesn't have the authority to preach this gospel that he's preaching. And the, the gospel that he is preaching is only half a gospel. That's the claim. That Paul, he wasn't sent by the, the leaders of the church, as we'll see, uh, as we work through the book, from Jerusalem. He doesn't have their backing, their endorsement. And also, he's, he's soft-pedaling this, this message about Jesus. We know that, yes, you're saved by faith, but you also must become Jewish. You must be circumcised and follow the law of Moses. And so Paul is being perceived as actually watering down the gospel because he's saying, no, no, you're saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. And so Paul begins this letter. It's why in verse 1 he begins, somewhat unusually, for a letter during this time in, in history. He says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead? Paul is making a claim here that his message it's not it doesn't have authority because of his pedigree. And as we'll see, he had quite a pedigree. nor does his, his message have authority, because other men, other leaders said, "Yes, Paul's one of us, and we have given him the authority. To do this. What Paul is saying is, no, I am an apostle because Jesus made me one. My authority comes from Jesus and our Heavenly Father. Now, that's quite a claim to make. And we'll have a chance to look at that claim in coming weeks as well. But first, think about, I want you to know what what does Paul mean when he says he's an apostle? And it's most basic. Meaning, an apostle just simply means to be sent. But in the New Testament, especially when we're talking about the New Testament apostles, those who are eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ, an apostle is someone who has received delegated authority. Another way to think about it in our day and time, it's like a power of attorney. If you had an apostle and you sent them to go speak on your behalf it was as if you were there speaking. There are actually even accounts of how this idea of an apostle is used in the first century that if if you had an apostle and you sent them to go do business on your behalf and they did something illegal, they were not held responsible. You were. That's delegated authority. And Paul is saying, the message I am preaching to you doesn't come from man It comes from the resurrected Jesus, which you can read about in Acts chapter 9. And we'll have a chance to come back to it as well in coming weeks. So, Paul here is telling us that the background to this book is a real serious problem. And it's a problem over what is the gospel? How do you get in on it? How can you be sure that it's true for you? And so then what I want to do is not only just look at the background, but then what is it that Paul says? The stakes couldn't be any higher. And for Paul, the need to clearly lay out the good news couldn't be any greater. And so here, actually, in verse 4, sometimes it's amazing how Paul can write a book like Romans, which is so big and substantial, and yet there are moments when you read in a span of one verse. The gospel in a nutshell. And that's what we have here in verse 4. Paul is giving us a snapshot, a a brief summary in a nutshell of what is the gospel. And the first thing I want you to see here when we come to verse 4, he says, picking up from verse 3, the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. That is the good news of Christianity. It's not a method. It's not a how-to. It is a statement about an event, something that happened on your behalf for all who would take it. And what I want you to notice here, particularly if you think about um, the Gospels and how much Jesus teaches, how many parables he tells to instruct to help people understand who he is and what the kingdom of God involves notice not what so much Paul does say but what he doesn't say here in verse 4 Paul makes no mention of Jesus teaching he only makes mention of what he does in giving his life for our sins now what are we to make of that? Is Paul saying his teaching doesn't matter? No, absolutely not. But what we are to see there is that for many people, uh, oftentimes Jesus is, is uh, valued and respected as a great teacher, which he no doubt was. And oftentimes uh, we, we might even fall into the trap and may think that being a Christian means simply following what Jesus says to do. Well, Paul here is making it absolutely clear, first of all, that that's not possible. Because he doesn't say here, what you most need to enjoy this freedom is just to follow Jesus more faithfully, to try a little bit harder. What Paul says here is not that you need a teacher. What you need is a rescuer. You need a deliverer. And in fact, to put it as as bluntly as I know how to, Jesus' teaching will only condemn you and exhaust you and destroy you if you don't know him as your rescuer. Paul's point here is, in saying that Jesus, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, what he is saying is, yes, you must listen to Jesus. But you must receive him as your rescuer. That is the good news of Christianity. And when Paul gives us a summary of his gospel here in verse 4, what he is telling us is really is describing who we are. In this one little word in verse 4 when he says to deliver us, this idea of rescue, the implication is that we we are people who are hopeless and we are helpless. In his letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul says in chapter 2 that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Theologians call this spiritual inability, that you cannot save yourself. You cannot rescue yourself. I don't know if you've ever watched uh, any of the Everest movies, the mountain climbing movies about Everest. And in, in some of them, they'll, they'll tell you about their preparation, getting ready to climb Everest. And there are sometimes scenes where you'll see the climbers and, and the Sherpas. The Sherpas are the uh, the folks who uh, live in um, Tibet and will walk Climb with the climbers, and they will practice what they call self rescue. And a self rescue in in mountain climbing is when you're climbing a big, tall mountain and you lose your hold and you start to slide to your death. The only thing that can stop you is your ice axe, and it's called a self rescue, where you have to pull your ice axe, hold it slam it into the ice and hope that you stop before you get to the edge of the mountain. What Paul is saying to us here, we are like these mountain climbers and you left your ice axe at home. And you are sliding down that mountain face and you cannot stop yourself. You need a rescuer. Or think of it like this. You know, if you tend to think about Jesus as a great moral teacher, or somebody who would be, you know, if we all followed him and did what he did, uh, the world would be a better place. Think of it like this: that imagine a child was drowning, and you were standing there on the side of the pool, and your response to that child was, you know, uh, let me give you this manual of really sagely advice about how not to drown. Is that what that child needs in that moment? Of course not. It's unthinkable that when a child is drowning, you would teach them how to swim. They can't do it. May not even be able to read yet. What they need is for you to jump in that water to swoop them up and bring them to safety. That's what Paul is trying to teach you here. You need a rescuer. That's where true freedom comes from. So Paul teaches us who, who we are, but then what, did, what does Jesus do that he tells us? He tells us in verse 4 again that Jesus gave himself for our sins. Here is um, perhaps again and again we see this in, in the New Testament, but it's a crucial idea When Paul writes that he gave himself for our sins, what Paul is telling us is that Jesus came to put himself in your place. He came to take your place, to be a substitute for you. And I I was trying to think of how I could try to give you an image for this. One obvious image is if you're at all familiar with sports where there are substitutes, the idea that uh, you're having a really bad game and you need someone to come in and take over and get right what you're getting wrong. Or think of it maybe another way. This is familiar to me, so I'll, I'll use this. In conflict with children where they don't are not listening don't really care what you have to say, would just as well hurt their brother than do anything else. And for the gazillionth time, I lose my patience, I yell, they burst into tears, it's a disaster. To know that Jesus has come for your sins, as your substitute, is to begin to to realize that Jesus puts himself right in those kinds of moments. Not in that exact time and moment, but he came to get right what I always get wrong. He came instead of yelling to give love and mercy, to be gracious and patient, to react and deal with people perfectly And then, not only that, to get right what I get wrong, but to bear the penalty for how far short I fall. So when Paul says that Jesus gave himself for our sins, that's what he came to do. But he came to do that for a very specific purpose, to deliver us from the present evil age. Now, what's Paul talking about? This gets into some really deep theology, but what y'all, all you need to know is this. Jesus came to start something new. Jesus came to bring about a whole new way of life. And it's a life of freedom. So when Paul here says that Jesus came to give himself for our sins, to deliver us from the present evil age, he's not talking about retreating, drawing back from all of that bad stuff out there. What he's talking about is free, freedom from rescue from the power of sin. That's what he means. What he's talking about here is not freedom from the presence of sin yet. But what he is talking about is freedom from the power of all that sets itself up against God. All that brings blindness to your life. All that brings breakdown and disintegration. All all of the sin that incapacitates you, that deceives you, that leaves you broken and ruined, ashamed, exposed, afraid, worried. All of the sin that brings breakdown to our neighbors, to our cities, to our countries to the to the world paul is saying jesus brings in a whole new era of freedom that's what jesus came to do now what does god do god the father do god accepts this work of jesus he takes and accepts this work as if it was your own this is the basis of joy and freedom in the Bible. That Jesus comes, that God delights in the Son. He's pleased with Him. And that pleasure bubbles over onto into anyone who would rest in this Jesus. Now, why does God do this? We have who we are, what Jesus did, what God did in accepting Jesus, in all of his work. Now, why did he do it? Verse 4 again. It was according to the will of our God. And then Paul says, to whom be glory forever and ever. We see this again and again in Paul. He includes this to simply to say, God didn't do this because there was anything in who you are or in what you do that compelled God to rescue us. It's all of grace. It's all according to God's design, his desires, his purpose, his longings for you to be made whole, for his creation to be made right. And therefore, Paul breaks out into doxology, into praise, into worship, because if this really all begins and ends with God, then we can't take any credit for it. The only appropriate response is to praise him to glorify Him, because it's all of grace. There's nothing that we did to deserve it or earn it. So as far as, as we, we can tell, as far as we've gotten at this point, as we enter into this letter, just looking at these opening verses, what can we expect? What can you look forward to? Look at the beginning of verse 3. Here is what you you can look for in your own life and look forward to as we listen to Paul. Grace to you and peace from God. Grace and peace. That's what you have to look forward to. And by grace here, Paul has in mind all that the gospel tells us about grace. Grace. That it's unmerited favor. That life is a gift. This is acceptance that doesn't depend on you and how well you're doing or not doing. And this this came home to me, particularly one time a friend of mine said to me, you know, Will, your biggest problem is you have yet to really believe and understand that because of Jesus, because of his grace, God is more comfortable with you than you are with yourself. Let me say that again. God is more comfortable with you than you are with yourself. Do you believe that? Do you need that? Is it possible? that God could be more delighted in you that he could cherish you satisfied with you than you are with yourself but it's not only grace it's also peace that which means here simply life is whole that when Paul says peace to you what he's talking about is in Jesus you you are at peace with your maker He is not mad at you. He is not angry with you. He will never be. He will never cast you out. He will never forsake you. But not only does it mean that you are reconciled to God, it also means that now in Jesus, through faith in him, there is available to you a life and a freedom and a power that can heal and make whole your life. That's what Paul is putting in front of us. This is what we have to look forward to. Grace and peace. That life is a gift and life is whole in Jesus. I want to leave you with a, a thought experiment. What is your experience of Christianity? Over this coming week, ask yourself that question. Try to be as specific as you can. What is your experience of Christianity? Is it an experience of a lot of ideas and instruction? Is it an experience of guilt and obligation? Is it an experience of self-help every now and then when needed? Or is it an experience of rescue and freedom? That's what this letter is for. That's why we have it. God desires that you would know His freedom, that you would experience His grace, this gospel freedom, this rescue, where you can begin to discover that you may actually become as comfortable with you as God is with you. And you begin to see the stranglehold of fear, of anxiety. Of working too much, of condescension, of pride, of self-righteousness, beginning to lose its grip, and instead beginning to enjoy this freedom found in jesus, let 's pray, Father in heaven, we ask that as we uh, begin our journey through this this letter about the freedom you have given in Jesus. We ask that it would become not just something we know about or talk about or um, aspire to, but that it becomes a lived experience, that you would meet us where we are, that you would deal tenderly with us, and that you would help us to, to stop trying to be something we could never be. But instead, I pray that when we're faced with our failures, when we're faced with hurt, when we're faced with the brokenness of the world, instead of turning to ourselves, I pray that you would give us the grace and humility to cry out for rescue, to cry out for deliverance, for freedom through Jesus, through his self-sacrifice on the cross so that we might truly live.